The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. I feel I feel good. It's almost like the sunshine, you know, is doing something. I feel, I think I got a sunburn yesterday. I mean, that's that's where I'm at. And if you haven't been outside for a significant amount of time this weekend yet, you need to get out there, okay? Because that's just going to just give you life, okay? It's, it's amazing. But sometimes we don't feel so great. And sometimes we feel like maybe in the last few weeks when it's been dark, we feel like everything is against us. Do you ever feel like that, that everything is just working against you? We've come, been coming out of the last like 10 weeks have been the shortest, the darkest weeks of the year. Does it feel like that? We've had clouds and, and rain and, and that's about it. You know, maybe some, and then a snowstorm every once in a while. That's it. That's what we get. Sometimes I wonder why we live here, but I mean, these days is good. Sometimes it feels like the weather system is just conspiring against you to keep you down. And sometimes it's the things on an everyday basis that we face that, that never seem to let up. Things tend to break, and they break at the most inconvenient times. I remember having to go to the appliance parts store on Christmas Eve because our dryer was broken. That was an inconvenient time, and it felt like something was working against me in that. Your work may continue to have problems after problem to solve, and you never feel like you can get out of that loop. If you're in school, maybe it sometimes feels like your teachers are working against you by how much homework that they give you. Or perhaps the kids at home, for some reason, are bent on driving you crazy. Like they're, they're working against you. It can feel like everything is against you sometimes. And not to mention the social pressure that we often feel as Christians in our society, where it feels like, like everybody is working against us. Not to mention inflation the cost of living and feeling like the economy is working against you and you can't get ahead. Maybe it's your health and that, that your body itself is working against you. When you put all these things together, it can feel like God himself is trying to conspiring against you to keep you down. And you feel like Jacob in, in Genesis 42, 36, like he did when he says this, everything is against me. What should we do when we feel like everything is against us? As a follower of Jesus, when it feels like everything is against you, you need to remind yourself that God is for you. Today, I'm going to wrap up this mini Roman series that uh, we've been doing. Uh, Leo has been looking at Romans 5, and uh, I I decided to keep going in this. And and the natural conclusion to the chapter in Romans 5 is really Romans 8. And so we're going to look at the concluding passage in Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 is considered the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I'm not exaggerating. Preachers tend to exaggerate. Look it up. If you look up greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8 is going to show up. And this is what all of Romans is leading up to. It's the climactic passage in Romans. And it's a response to particularly Romans 5 through 7 and everything that, that Paul says in Romans 8 here at the end. So if you missed Pastor, uh, Pastor Leo's sermons on Romans 5, make sure you go back, listen to those, and it, this will, it'll, it'll help. You can check that out on our podcast or on YouTube. So we're going to look at Romans 8, 
uh, verses 31 to 39. And we're going to find that God is for you, even when it feels like everything is against you. So let me read. Uh, I'm going to read Romans 8, 31 um, to 38, 39. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to stand. I'm going to read it and uh, stand as you're able. And we're going to, I'm going to read this over you. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What then shall we say in response to these things? These are the things that Paul has been saying, starting in chapter 5, maybe even earlier, but it's more directly and most directly related to the last uh, verses that have been said in chapter 8, particularly the last few verses. And Paul's main point here in this passage is clear, right at the front end. In the second half of verse 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this is, of course, a rhetorical question, directly implying that God is for you. So in context, then, what does it mean that God is for you? Now, it doesn't mean what we would like it to mean or what sometimes we think it means is is that it's a feel-good message. It's God is for you no matter what you do, whatever you set your mind on. God is behind you. He is with you 100%. So get out there and do whatever you want because God is for you. That isn't what it means. God isn't the leader of your personal cheer squad, waving pom-poms and doing backflips for you. That's not what it means for God to be for you. It also doesn't mean that God is, does everything for you. He doesn't go ahead and take care of everything for you. He doesn't, doesn't give you everything you ever wanted so you can live peaceful and wealthy, happy and healthy life and takes your problems away. He's not your butler or personal assistant. What does it mean then to say that God is for you? That is what we're going to look at today. And as we go through the next eight verses, we're going to pull out three truths we can say that remind us how God is for us. That's three truths we can say to remind us how God is for us. So let's start with truth number one. Through Christ, extravagant love is mine. In Lion King, Mufasa is up on Pride Rock with Simba, looking over the Pride Lands. And he explains to Simba that everything the light touches is their kingdom and one day it will belong to Simba. 
I consider this a huge power grab. Everything the light touches is, he's, he's got some kind of God complex, this Mufasa guy. But, I mean, that's everything. That's everything. But and the point, what I'm trying to make is, is that because Simba is Mufasa's son, everything Mufasa has belongs to his son. In the same way, everything the father has belongs to his son, which is literally everything. So as Paul argues, when the father gives up his son for us, it is as if he is giving everything he has, his very self, to us. So look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If his son was given, everything else will also be given as well. And this is the extravagant love of God for you, which is why we can confidently say, through Christ, extravagant love is mine. Notice how Paul is indicating here that the father gives up Jesus for us. It wasn't by chance that Jesus went to the cross, but by a deliberate action of the father for the sake of the church. 19th century preacher Octavius Winslow says this, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the father for love. It's so important to understand that God sent Jesus to die, not these other circumstantial stuff. They were orchestrated by God for him to be the sacrifice for our sins. So we can confidently say extravagant love is mine. So if we can say this, that because he's given us his son, he will also graciously give us all things. How is this love made available to us? This extravagant love is tangibly available to us in two ways. The first is earthly provision. According to Jesus' teaching, God promises to provide for our needs. This doesn't mean God will grant your every wish like a genie, but Jesus teaches that God the Father delights to give good gifts to his children and to provide for their needs. We can call on the extravagant love of the Father to provide for our needs and pray as Jesus taught us to give us today our daily bread. It doesn't mean this always happens the way that we would like. And as Paul said, sometimes there are famines and persecution and, and you go without. But we aren't on our own in those times because, because God also grants us spiritual blessings. And that's the second way we have access to God's extravagant love. Paul states in Ephesians 1.3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. By granting us his Holy Spirit, we have available to us all the spiritual blessings possible in Christ. That is, everything that we need to live with God in this life, to serve him, to love others, is available to us by the Holy Spirit. And this is what the good gift that Jesus is referring to ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that God gives to his children. And this is how God is for us, that through his extravagant love, he provides for our needs and blesses us spiritually. And when everything feels against us, we can say this truth with confidence that extravagant love is mine. And with this in mind, we should seek to pray in every circumstance to access the extravagant love of God. If you aren't feeling God's extravagant 
love and not experiencing the spiritual blessings that come from God, you need to pray. As Jesus said, you do not have because you do not ask God. As Paul has said in Philippians 4, 6 to 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here we see the earthly provision and spiritual blessings working together. We ask for what we need, and we are promised peace about it and leaving it in God's care. And he gives us all the spiritual blessings. Notice, I think it's important to understand, I didn't say earthly blessings, spiritual provision. It's earthly provision, spiritual blessings. God blesses us abundantly spiritually, everything that we could possibly need. And sometimes we don't have everything that we need on earth, but we seek what God provides, just what we need, not, not above and beyond. But spiritually, it's above and beyond. It's, it's beyond your wildest dreams. And we have access to what we require spiritually when we seek him in prayer. So I encourage you, um, in response to that first truth, to, to pray in every circumstance, to receive, to access the extravagant love of God. And so this is our first instinct when it feels like everything is against us is to remind ourselves that through Christ, extravagant love is ours and turn to God in prayer, asking for what we need. That's truth number one. Truth number two that we can say to remind us that God is for us is through Christ, there is no condemnation. One of my elementary school teachers he told us that he got into an accident and he was being charged by the police and he was going to fight it. And, and so he, he told us this story about how he prepared his defense. And he was our math teacher. So he, he had calculated every possible calculation you can make about this accident in terms of like the vector and angles and the speed and like all this stuff. And he had a Bristol board with a chart that he had made with cars going on. He was trying to show how the accident happened. This was, he was going to present this to the judge. It was extravagant. He had his entire defense presentation prepared for this judge. He gets on his suit and he gets to his appointed time in court and his time is come to make his case. But the police officer who laid the charge didn't show up. So the judge threw out the case and he got off free with a clean slate. And he was upset that he spent all this time working on his defense. But no one was there to lay a charge against him. You know, we also receive charges and condemnation from many places to make us feel like everything is against us and to bring us down. But as Paul says in verse 33, that is, it is God who justifies And this means that God has declared those who are in Christ as righteous or made right before God. It's a legal declaration that all charges and condemnation have been dropped by God because of Jesus. That is why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, the beginning of this chapter, which may be the theme of the whole chapter, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, we still face and receive charges and condemnation in this life, or at least we feel like we do. And these come from three places, generally. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We receive charges and condemnation from the world. And usually these come in, in, in forms of saying we aren't loving or accepting enough that we're hypocrites and Pharisees and, and bigots and anti-science for holding to what the Bible teaches 
and what the church has believed for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there are times when the world's criticism hits correctly, and it's actually the Spirit convicting us, and we need to repent because it resonates with the teachings of Jesus, that we aren't living to God's standards. And other people point that out, and that, that happens. But most of the time, it's simply because the world hates us, as they hated Jesus, which is exactly what he said would happen. So we shouldn't be surprised. Sometimes we're like, <gasps> we shouldn't be surprised. It's easy for us to get discouraged by this and to get defensive, seek to try and justify ourselves to the world as if they have the ultimate authority and moral standard, which they don't. But we aren't accountable to the world. We are accountable to God. And when we feel that the world is against us, we can say this truth, through Christ, there is no condemnation. Another place where we see charges and condemnation is from the flesh. Do you ever find yourself in a position where you're condemning yourself? Self-condemnation, self-doubt. It can often happen when we just get down on ourselves, we berate ourselves for what we've done, for not being better than we are. I often get stuck in this downward spiral where I, you know, you just, you think negatively about yourself and you're just like, oh, why you did this, you did this, what's wrong with you? That's from the flesh. And it's some kind of attempt at penance and retribution or punishment. It's easy to get caught in this trap, in this cycle that keeps us down. But Jesus is the one who already received the wrath of God for you. So you don't have to beat yourself up. Instead, we can say that through Christ, there is no condemnation. And you need to say that to yourself when you're hard on yourself. Thirdly, we have the devil. We receive charges and condemnation, finally and most often from the devil. In Revelation, Satan is called the accuser. And we often experience his accusations reminding us of our sin, our unworthiness, our shame. You know, the devil and his minions wants you to focus on your sin, to dwell on it, to mull it over, to sit in it, and find your identity in it. But through Christ, our sin is taken care of. And the devil loses its power. There's this great scene in in the book of Zechariah chapter 3. It's a great chapter. And it's just a little anecdotal story. And where the high priest Joshua is standing before God in filthy rags. Representing his sin. And Satan is there, ready to accuse him for his filthy rags. To bring him down. To say, how can you come before God like this? And the Lord rebukes Satan. And the Lord takes off his filthy rags and clothes him with new clothes. And the Lord says, he has taken away his sin. And later in that, uh, that same chapter, Zechariah prophesies that he's going to remove, God's going to remove the sin of this land in a single day which, you know, post-cross is a beautiful prophecy to recognize that that did happen on one day. And this is the, exactly the picture that we have in these verses. It's this, this kind of heavenly courtroom scene. So imagine you are in the courtroom of heaven. You know, God is standing before you as your judge. You prepare the best defense you can. You gather all your good works in a well-laid-out presentation, 
You have references from your closest friends, co-workers, family. You've rationalized every sin you've committed. You have a psychologist note explaining your mental health condition, hoping that will, God will take that in consideration. You've got charitable donations receipts. You've got your tax returns with you. You have your baptism certificate. You have a letter of recommendation from your pastor. And you've got a church attendance attestation signed by the church administrator as well. And you prepare all these things to bring before God. And you arrive with your best clothes, ready to present yourself. But in the presence of God, everything that you have in your defense turns into filthy rags. How are you going to win this case? How can you justify yourself before God? You can't. But then Jesus comes, he takes your filthy rags, and he gives you new clothes. And the father hits the gavel and says, justified. Justified. Look at verse 35. Who shall, uh, sorry, look at verse uh, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In verse 33, it is God who justifies. What then becomes of all your preparation and your defense? It's garbage. It's useless. It's worthless. Because the only defense you will ever need is the name of Jesus on your lips. And our mistake is trying to to represent ourselves instead of taking the freely offered defense of Jesus Christ, the best divine defense attorney you can get, who wins every case. And through Christ, there is no condemnation. And this is a truth we should say often and always to remind ourselves how God is for us. So who can be against us? And I believe the best way you can take hold of this is to memorize Romans 8.1. Some of you already have that done, so maybe take it a little further. Memorize a few other chapters in Romans 8. Maybe the whole thing. I mean, it is, like I said, the greatest uh, chapter in the Bible for a reason. And Scripture is our best defense against temptation and accusation. It's what Jesus used to defeat the devil in the desert. Just try to say Scripture memory verses that he learned as a child. That's how, that was his weapon. And so we need to equip ourselves and our families to be able to do spiritual warfare with the Bible. So um, I, I encourage you also to just do some, some uh, personal study in Romans 8. Uh, that'll encourage you as you meditate on God's grace there as well. So that's, that's number two. There is no condemnation. Extravagant love is mine. There is no condemnation. And number three, God is for you. And we can remind ourselves of this. Through Christ, ultimate assurance protects me. Ultimate assurance protects me. Now, we all have insurance in various forms. House insurance, car insurance, life insurance, you know, medical and dental insurance. Some of us have pet insurance. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important thing. Um, insurance is a protection against what you don't know and what might happen. We have insurance just in case worse comes to worse. It's just protection. Assurance is different. Assurance is confirmation of what you already know is going to happen. It's a guarantee of what is supposed to happen will happen. It's a deposit or certificate that confirms that we know to be true. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is that deposit that testifies to our identity. If you look back 
back to the earlier verses. It testifies to us that we are God's children. And that's where the assurance comes from. And for us to have that protection that comes from God being for us, we need to have salvation assurance, not salvation insurance. Salvation insurance doesn't change your life from day to day. It's just, it's just in case. It's just in case. It's not a sure thing. You can live however you like because you have insurance. Salvation assurance completely changes your life. Your destiny is assured. You know where you are headed. You know where you are going. You know who you are. You are about your father's business. And everything in your life is built around that assurance, that rock-solid foundation. Insurance applies after the fact. But assurance is a present reality today. It protects you right now. Not just tomorrow or at the end of your life. We need salvation assurance. And Paul demonstrates this ultimate assurance through one final line of questioning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Those who love God and are called according to his purpose, back in verse 28, in chapter 8, are sealed with the love of Christ. And that extravagant love that we talked about before is something inseparable from the believer. It is something solid, secure, unyielding. And Paul is communicating that assurance that comes through the love of Christ, even when it feels like everything is against you, can never fail. So how does ultimate assurance protect me right now? So there are three ways, three ways that ultimate assurance protects us today. And the first, I think, is the most important, but they're all, they're all significant, is a secure identity. We're protected by a secure identity. Our identity is how we view ourselves, where we find our hope, our purpose, meaning in life. Human beings can find their identity in you know, thousands of different places. Hobbies and sports, our careers, our families, our health, our, our finances, our belief system, politics, our personality. All these things that kind of form our identity and who we are. And these are kind of human-based identities. And ultimately, none of these human-based identities can hold up over the long term. These are insecure identities. All of them are vulnerable to life stages, changes in circumstances, tragedies, personal crisis. Some of your identities were challenged in this way over the last few years. Anything that is listed in verse 35, which is you know, trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword is going to destroy the insecure identities that you have. They will not hold up. And these are all things Paul himself went through or will ultimately go through. Having your identity in Christ and the assurance of God's love is something that cannot be shaken. That is the only identity that is going to hold up through anything that life throws at you. Not only that, but your identity in Christ will strengthen you through it. As Philippians 4, 12 to 13 says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Not just to win football games. Under the eyes or something. I don't know. Philippians 4, 13. Ultimate assurance protects you with that a secure identity. 
The second way ultimate assurance protects you is through spiritual victory over the enemies of God. In verse 37, Paul says, in all things he listed in verse 35, that we are, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is literally uh, hyper-conquerors, super-conquerors. That's why it says more than conquerors. That's the translation. He goes on to say that angels, demons, powers can't separate us from the love of God. This refers to the extent of the supernatural world. All the things in the supernatural world have nothing to say against the love of God. And God gives us victory over the spiritual realm in the name of Jesus. And this is a reality that we don't spend enough time thinking about. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our fight. This is a present reality in our world that the devil would love for us to ignore. And when we fail to recognize the spiritual forces of evil in our world today, we also fail to claim spiritual victory that comes through the love of Christ. One of our elders in their family, the Davises recently went to Nicaragua to support missionaries and serve the Lord. And they can testify to feeling like everything is working against them, what they're trying to do. It's really their story to tell, but, you know, the government, the weather, sickness, unforeseen events, spiritual attack that's very real. When we seek to bring the gospel to people, we are waging spiritual warfare. They can also testify to the power of prayer and how God was working and the sustaining power of God's love. And it's this ultimate assurance of God's love and spiritual victory that makes us super conquerors in Jesus' name. We've got to take hold of that in every situation. Ultimate assurance protects us. Finally, ultimate assurance also brings an eternal perspective. Paul is also referring to an eternal inheritance that is available to those who believe. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter refers to this as an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Jesus speaks about storing your treasure in heaven where no moth or rust can destroy and no thieves can break in and steal. And this inheritance is eternity with the Father, all the riches of his love. And we can only imagine what that will be like, but it's something we can hold on to today in a very real sense with an eternal perspective through Christ's ultimate assurance. Paul refers ultimately to the trial of death or specifically being martyred for the faith. And this was a present reality for the Romans who were living under the reign of Nero, who would, who would blame the Christians for the great fire in Rome and would lead a, a terrible persecution against them. So this was a present reality, but it was only getting worse. And Paul quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We could also recall the end of the hall of, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, referring to those who have been persecuted for their faith, both before and after Christ. And ultimate assurance, greatest protection, is knowing that heaven awaits us. Knowing that our future is secure. 
and Jesus is preparing a place for us. John Chrysostom was an early church father and church leader in the late 4th century. And when Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. And Chrysostom replied, you can't banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, said the noble champion of the faith. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. No, but you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from man and you will have no friend left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. And that's how ultimate assurance protects you in every situation. Reminds you that God is for you and therefore nothing can be against you because nothing can separate you from the love of God. So those are three truths we can say through Christ to remind ourselves that God is for us. Extravagant love is mine. There is no condemnation. And ultimate assurance protects me. Now the key here is that this applies to believers. To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And some of you aren't there yet. You're still on the fence about this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you haven't taken that that next step. You just have too many questions to really say you're there. And that's okay. We welcome everybody here, no matter where they are at, and we want to walk with you, point you to Jesus. But you must understand, if you aren't a believer in Jesus, these promises aren't for you. In fact, the opposite is true. Just as God is for you, no one can be against you. If God isn't for you, everything is against you. Nothing's working for your good. You are on your own. And even worse, without Christ, you must stand alone in front of the God of the universe and give an account for what you have done. I mean, all you have is the filthy rags of your sin and pathetic attempts at good works. But the good news is God's extravagant love can be yours through Christ. Jesus offers to take your filthy rags on himself and give you his clean clothes. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus as your savior. Then you can claim these promises in Romans 8 for yourself. And God may be using everything going on in your life right now to bring you to this point, to bring you to Jesus. Don't miss out on what God is doing in your life. He is working. For the rest of us, those who believe in Jesus, our Savior, what then shall we say to these things? All we can do is worship God for his grace and mercy. And follow him in obedience. I'm going to invite the worship team up now to start making their way up as I close. And our response to God's love and grace must always be worship. That isn't just singing and music. It's also obedience. Now as we worship together, allow God's spirit to speak to you and reveal how you can step into the promises that God has for you. How you can continue to live as God's people in this broken world. Allow God's love to fill you with ultimate assurance. To release yourself from the condemnation that you're experiencing in Jesus' name. And rest in the God who is for you and not against you. Worship the God who is for you and not against you through Christ our Lord. Let's pray together to our God who is for us.
Father in heaven, what can we say to all that you have done in Christ for us? You have poured out your extravagant love. And more than this, you offer eternity with you. How can we ever repay you? What can we do but worship you? To pour out our hearts, to focus our minds and thoughts on your goodness and your grace. Father, I pray that you would release us from self-condemnation. Release us from the condemnation that we receive from the accuser. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us take hold of that this morning. So that we can live in the freedom that you give. And walk in the love of Jesus. Father, we repent of, of neglecting the spiritual blessing and promises that you give. You are moving and working in this world in ways that we don't understand, but we need to be a part of it. So help us to seek spiritual victory in our lives through prayer and spiritual warfare. God, we rebuke the devil in his ways, trying to take hold of our lives, trying to to lead us astray. May we claim spiritual victory in the name of Jesus. That he cannot accuse us and he cannot stop what you are doing. And everything that he, did, he does, you are going to use for your good and the God, sake of the gospel. So God, lead us by your spirit into all truth. And may you go ahead of us as we seek to be the community that proclaims the good news of Jesus every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.